Hey everyone and welcome to The Design of Everything, a podcast that uncovers people's creativity from all walks of life. I'm your host, Kyle Berseth. It's wonderful to be in your ears. And this is episode number 37. Before we get into the episode, I just want to thank everyone who has been sharing and sticking with the podcast. For the past three months or so, I've been up in the California woods fixing up a cabin, and I haven't been able to get episodes uploaded as frequently as I'd like. I've had slightly limited internet connection and pretty limited contact with people, for better or for worse. But hopefully, like Justin Vernon of Bon Iver, who retreated to the Wisconsin woods, and Bob Dylan, who retreated to Woodstock, and the OG of getting back to nature, Thoreau, I will emerge from the woods with a wellspring of creativity and more frequent episodes. Or maybe I'll just emerge from the woods with a severe case of botulism from all the canned goods I've been eating. Only time will tell. That brings me to my guest this week, Cameron Hummels, an astrophysicist in Pasadena, California. Cameron's research is focused on the formation of galaxies that are billions of years old and will show little change during his lifetime. The lack of time available forces him to think creatively about galaxy formation and has also impacted the way he thinks about his life in the grand scheme of things. So this is my conversation with Cameron Hummels about the design of a galaxy. My name is Cameron Hummels. I am a postdoctoral fellow, a National Science Foundation postdoctoral fellow at Caltech doing research in astronomy and astrophysics. Okay, so I'll say this. I did a little research on astrophysics in preparation for this interview. Excellent. And it was like reading Chinese. (laughs) So uh, if I come off as, as totally ignorant, no problem. It's Totally accurate. Okay, no problem. So you're doing astrophysics. You got the whole galaxy. Right. And other galaxies. And other galaxies, yeah. Where do you start? Good question. Okay. We as astronomers and astrophysicists are ultimately doing the same thing that other scientists and other fields are doing. We're trying to understand nature a little bit better, but our purview is everything off the surface of the earth everything mm-hmm. in space which is a pretty big purview oh that gets the big that's that's yeah, way it's bigger big, yeah <laughs> it's it's like the biggest questions and the biggest structures in the universe and such so uh different astrophysicists and astronomers and i guess i should just say so traditionally people hear the words astronomer and astrophysicist and think of different things effectively today astronomers and astrophysicists are the the same 
Okay. So if you if you run into someone who calls themselves an astronomer, then they probably are an astrophysicist as well. Because traditionally there was a divide that astronomers were the people observing through telescopes mm-hmm. and astrophysicists were the physicists, like the academic physicists who were understanding uh, the physical laws that were responsible for why things in space were behaving the way they were. But effectively today professional astronomers are astrophysicists and professional astrophysicists are astronomers. The only divide is that there are sometimes amateur astronomers who are just have a telescope at I home. I was just going to say, you can't yeah. get paid for looking through a telescope right. anymore. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so there are many different branches of astronomy and astrophysics that people study. Everything from cosmology, the, the evolution of our universe as a whole, to to individual galaxies within the universe. Galaxies are just collections of stars and dark matter and gas, Mm -hmm. uh, usually on the order of millions to billions to trillions of stars in the galaxies. That's what I mean. It's so daunting. Yeah, they're big, big structures. Uh, And then you'll have people who focus just on stars. You have people who just focus on planets. There's a variety of different focuses. I, in particular, work on the formation and evolution of galaxies, uh, like our own Milky Way, which is our galaxy. And yeah, you're right. Like these numbers are enormous and they can be daunting, but ultimately it's like anything in your life. The more you encounter it and you get used to talking about these enormous numbers or these enormous volumes, it just come becomes sort of second nature and you wash over the fact that this is so big. Right. I don't think about the vastness of space every time I go to do a calculation or go to do something like this. It's just... It's a number. Yeah. And a light year is nothing to yeah. you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The size of galaxies are, I mean, the size of the, the total volume taken up by a galaxy is uh, like 250 kiloparsecs. So like 750,000 light years across. Yeah. I mean, it's an enormous. I had to look up what a parsec was and I right. was like, well, all right, I'm lost. Yeah, yeah. Parsec <laughs> is, yeah, it's a confusing term. Right. Especially because in Star Wars, uh, Han Solo brags about doing a particular. Uh, he he did the oh shoot he the, the, the something in twelve in parsecs. 12, yeah, exactly in twelve parsecs, and he refers Nerd to it alert. As a, he refers to, to it as a as a unit of time when in fact it's a unit of distance. A, a Kessel run ruined than, Star Wars know, for you. No, no, I, I'm still <laughs> a big fan off. of Star Wars, but yeah. So how did you get into it? Into astronomy and physics? Yeah, I mean, does that start as a child? Did you just have a natural curiosity? You're looking up at the sky like Tom Hanks in Apollo 13, like, oh, what's up there? Um, I think like a lot of professional astronomers, yes, part of it was through experiences as a child. Uh, but ultimately, I liked a lot of different fields of science mm-hmm. growing up, uh, chemistry, geology, astronomy, math, and so on and so forth. And it wasn't until college, I actually studied computer science in college, uh, mostly focused on programming and such, but it was late in my my college career that I took an observational astronomy course, and it was just super awesome. So I decided to kind of pursue that. How late into college are we talking? I think I took the observational astronomy course as a second semester junior and I was like psyched so that it as effectively what it meant is I could take some more classes my final year but I couldn't go straight to graduate school in astronomy because I hadn't had a lot of the coursework because I kind of mm-hmm. encountered it so late and then had to take a bit of a circuitous route to end up into a PhD program in astronomy to take more coursework but it worked out to be an astrophysicist 
Do you have to be a doctor? Uh, different people might give you different answers. I think for the most part, yes. If you want to be able to choose your own field of research and the questions that you're the one that's deciding, you know, am I going to pursue this question and try and mm-hmm. solve this research and whatnot, then ultimately, yes, you, you need to have a PhD in, in the field. Uh, there are opportunities for people to work in a lab or work with a faculty member. You got to mop up the not lab. To. Yeah. <laughs> That's your job. Not, not necessarily the goodwill hunting <laughs> approach, but, but there are opportunities where you could help out in, in analyzing observational science data. There's there uh, at, with just a bachelor's degree or, or a master's degree. But ultimately, if you want to determine your, your, your field of research and, mm-hmm. and, and, and ask your own questions, you probably need to have an advanced degree beyond, beyond that. But there are opportunities in citizen science work where people, lay people can be involved in asking questions and answering questions of particular questions like how do galaxies evolve by looking at lots of observational data of galaxies. There's a website called the the Zooniverse or Galaxy Zoo where you as any person can log in and they'll give you a bunch of images of galaxies and you can help classify them because we have so, so, so much data that we can't analyze it all by the number of PhD astronomers who are available. So mm. we, we open it up to the public to help analyze these data oh so boy. there are opportunities it's that, cool. that could be a good thing and a bad thing yeah. i would think yeah 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 definitely <laughs> so let's talk about those questions what are your questions okay so my my main questions are in trying to trying to understand how galaxies form how they evolve and how they got to be the way we see them in the sky today. And the main the main trick with this is observationally the galaxies like our own Milky Way take a long 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 time to change. Uh, if you think about if you think about our solar system as an as an analogy. So our earth orbits around our sun and it takes 1 year for the earth to go all the way around the sun. Similarly, if we take our entire solar system consisting of all the planets and the sun, that star system, like many star systems, are in the Milky Way, and they're orbiting around the center of mass of the Milky Way. But instead Mm -hmm. of taking one year for our entire solar system to go around the center of mass of the Milky Way, it takes like 250 million years. And this is similar for other galactic structures as well. So when we look up in the sky and we take a picture of some distant galaxy like the Andromeda galaxy, which most of you are are, uh, uh, know of from it's oftentimes the background on your Mac OS Mm. uh, has, has this nice galaxy image. So that's basically the Andromeda galaxy. So if you take a picture of Andromeda from today and compare it with an image of Andromeda from 100 years ago, there's virtually no difference <laughs> yeah, because it just a slight 100 blur years if yeah, you exactly. overlap them. Exactly. 100 years to a galaxy is 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 nothing. Yeah. And and thus it can be hard to see how these things change on time scales with like associated with the age of the universe because we just haven't been around that long. It's yeah. not compatible with human life time scales. One way that we can get around that is by running computer simulations where we 
we we put together what we think are good initial conditions for our experiment essentially we we take a volume of space and and program that in as like a virtual space in our computer and then we program in the configuration of matter at least statistically speaking that we think was occurring right after the big bang very early in the universe's how evolution. are you guessing not guessing not guessing how, are you, how do we get this information? yeah get that information. we get it from information from observations of something called the cosmic microwave background which is to say oh this is tricky so early so right after the big bang the big bang is very early in the universe's evolution and it's extremely dense and hot and energetic and you've got photons you know light rays flying everywhere at super high energies and you've got uh you don't even really have atoms because it's so hot that they're running into each other and they're dissociating into their protons and their electrons and so it's this big soup mm -hmm. of of subatomic particles and light rays flying around but the universe is expanding and as it expands it's it's cooling off because you're taking all that energy and you're spreading it out over a larger volume over time so it's as it's cooling off pretty soon these these light rays uh which were once gamma rays these are very very energetic are now they're they're becoming less energetic mm -hmm. and they're becoming uh X-rays and then ultraviolet rays and then visible wavelength rays and so on and so forth. Similarly, the protons and the electrons are slamming into each other less frequently than they were when everything was quite dense and, and packed together. Yeah. And and they they pretty soon they don't slam into each other quite as much, and then they can form into atoms like the atoms that we have today, mostly hydrogen and helium in the early universe. And at the moment that the that the um the atoms and the photons aren't slamming into each other quite so often. The photons event effectively can can free stream and not run into the atoms anymore. And this is, I know this is a long way of getting to this this statement, but this is called the surface of last scattering. It's called. Uh, it's essentially when the photons just there are photons flying everywhere, and they're at a characteristic wavelength and that wavelength stretches out over the course of the universe or over the age of the universe and now we see those so so this was a discovery made about in the 1960s 1970s uh this these were discovered by actually a couple of engineers at bell labs they were trying to figure out i'm going really off course here Sorry. please please okay. i mean we're talking about the big bang i mean we're bang. uh 13 minutes 20 okay. seconds in I'm totally lost. Okay, okay, so, <laughs> okay, okay, okay. No, but the, <laughs> you start a simulation with the Big Bang Theory yes. and what you know. Yes, yes, that's right. So we can use the photons that we've detected that are essentially have been free streaming since just after the Big Bang. And that tells us something about the configuration of matter mm -hmm. right after the Big Bang. So we use these conditions as the initial conditions in our simulations. Maybe you said this already, but how long ago was the Big Bang? Ah, so give the, or take. Give or take. Uh, a thousand uh, yeah. um, more than years. that. So the, the 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 Big Bang occurred about 14 billion years ago. Okay, all right. So so give or take, you know. So a few you have your years. starting point of the Big Bang approximately. Yes. And you have 14 billion years of change to work with. Yes. And that's your starting point for you trying to figure out what's happening. That's basically. right. So essentially we have the conditions that we think existed from this cosmic microwave background. Uh, 
the conditions in the in uh, in our simulation that represent the the starting point just after the big bang then we program in the laws of physics that we think dominate on these very 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 large scales which mm-hmm. is to say gravity tends to dominate on these scales uh and hydrodynamics how gases interact with each other because most of the universe is made up of gas essentially there aren't a lot of hard structures that, that were uh comfortable thinking about like planets and uh you and I and this sofa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's very little of, of these solid structures. And they're the same gases that we have here on Earth yes. for the most part. For so the that's most how part. we know how they how they react behave because we can conduct experiments on the surface of the earth mm-hmm. uh to test how gases interact and that sort of thing. So so those are the two main things that we incorporate into our simulations. And then essentially we just run those simulations forward and Fortunately, because it's a simulation that we can control in a computer, we can artificially accelerate time and cover that 14 billion years in a week of runtime or right. a month of runtime or something like oh, that. Oh, it's still okay. So that still takes a fair amount of runtime. It depends on how detailed your simulation is. If it's if it's not very detailed, you can run it quite quickly. If if it's very very detailed, it takes a lot of computational power and it might take more time. Yeah, you're like run. let's Go take a long lunch. That's right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'll be back in a month. I'll be back in a month and, and check out these results. Okay, so you get you get the results. I guess, you know, to me, because it's this huge thing, Right. it's like, uh, all right. What's well, this mean? Well, yeah, yeah exactly. what now? So, so the real key is that we get those results, and in the results... Essentially, remember what the simulation is. It's a virtual box that represents a big chunk of space. Mm-hmm. And in that box, we've we've formed, we well, we hope we've formed, structures like we see when we look up in the sky today with our telescope. So galaxies, stars, this sort of thing. And it turns out that we're able to do a pretty good job of reproducing in our computer simulations the kinds of galaxies that we see when we take our telescopes and look up in the sky at the galaxies that are around us today. They aren't identical clones of those galaxies because we don't have the exact initial conditions for our chunk of space yeah. that resulted in these galaxies. But statistically speaking, they have the same sort of characteristics as the galaxies that we see when we look up in the sky. So if I look in my simulation, uh, I'm going to be able to form galaxies that have the same sort of mass and the same sort of size and the same sort of colors uh, and same sort of morphologies or distributions or shapes as the sorts of things that we see uh, when I go to the Hubble Space Telescope and take Im- images of a, of a galaxy mm-hmm. that's, you know, around around our group or something like that. So the, that's ass- essentially what the purpose of all this is to see, do we have a a good enough understanding of what's going on on these scales to reproduce it in a computer simulation and and be able to 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 make kind of a mock observation of the sorts of things that exist around us in the universe today. And for the most part today we're doing an okay job, but 20 years ago, no, we did a super crap task uh, job. Yeah, so. but 20 years from now, do you think you'll be saying, "Ah, those simulations uh <laughs> whoops." Yeah, uh, it's possible. It's possible. <laughs> it's definitely possible. Okay, so your goal is to figure all that out. Right. And then what? Then what? Yeah, what what what's 
I guess, uh, is it space exploration? Is it? Oh, in terms um, of practicality. So yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> What's so yeah. Well, that's why we don't. That's why they don't pay us very much. Um, <laughs> it uh, if this were, if because this had a lot of gun. Okay, yeah, now what? <laughs> yeah. No, if this had a lot of direct, practical application and profitable application, there'd definitely be more money that would be dumped into academic astrophysics. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but and there and there are some areas that definitely have have ways in which they're there they are p- potentially more profitable uh understanding how galaxies form and evolve it's more the desire to understand nature and the universe around us mm-hmm. to understand our place in the universe as opposed to having a direct spin-off that i can go patent and make a million dollars with yeah there yeah. may be technologies that we come up with through pure research like this that spins off and is is beneficial to society as a whole but Ultimately, the main the main goal is not it, it's just for understanding the 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 nature of the universe and, and nature. Uh, so you're driven purely by curiosity, essentially. Yes, that's right. I think that's true for most most pure like academic scientists. Yes, I'm sure there are some. They certainly aren't driven by money, <laughs> right? Because there's no money to be had. Uh, maybe prestige, maybe power, but for the most part, I think most scientists are driven by trying to pull back the veil a bit and understand more of what nature has has designed the universe to be like mm-hmm. and trying to understand that and, and bring understanding to other people. I'll tell you how you get some money. What's that? You know, you're discovering basically uh, everything that goes against religion. And uh, you're discovering a new religion, essentially. There's a lot of money in religion. There's, there is a lot of money <laughs> in religion. But, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess that is an interesting point. Some people do, do characterize science as kind of a, kind of a religion. But uh, I know it's certainly compatible with a lot of people's religions, too. There are religious people who engage sure, in, in sure, science sure, as sure. well. So. so getting back to the simulations, you find the results. You, do you map it out? essentially or well usually what it is so i'm glossing over some of the details but so we see how well we're able to reproduce galaxies and it's not just the reproduction oh did we get it yeah we good we got it good okay we can move on it's more uh once we're reproducing them we have confidence in how our simulations are doing how accurately our simulations are working and that informs something about how the galaxies do form and change so effectively there are different classifications of galaxies and i'm going to offer an analogy as to why this why what doing the computational modeling of galaxies why it's important uh when we look up in the sky we see millions and billions of galaxies around us with our telescopes Generally, these are classified into two, roughly two kinds of galaxies. You have your traditional spiral galaxy or disk galaxy, like we think of when you generally think of galaxies, mm-hmm. like the Andromeda galaxy is a good example. That's I think of it like a fried egg. Yeah. So it's got a disky structure, maybe some spiral arms in, the, in that disky structure, and then there's kind of a yolk at the middle, a bulge at the middle. There are also galaxies that are totally different called elliptical galaxies, which are more like a hard-boiled egg. It's just a single kind of elliptical structure on the sky. Mm-hmm. Again, both are composed of stars, both are composed of dark matter and gas and so on and so forth, but they have just different 
uh, different uh, distributions of matter and different ways in which the, the stars and the matter move. Um, but we see all of these and we try and understand, you know, do, do one type of galaxy change into the other type? Do, we, we don't really understand that. That's why we run the simulations. And, and the analogy that I give is pretend for a moment that you are an alien and you live the entirety of your life in half a second. Now, you can fly around, uh, you, you, you're an alien, you, you fly down to the surface of Earth, and of course, your whole life is in nanoseconds and milliseconds, yeah. and we're essentially all fixed. You look at, at the humans on Earth, and we're all just stopped in time from your perspective, because you live your life so oh, quickly. Yeah, our time is so slow. That's right. So you see all of us, and we're all just stopped. Now, you go around, and you fly around, and you see men, and you see women, which are qualitatively different humans mm -hmm. uh you see you see black people you see white people you see old people you see young people and you might try and want to understand how do people change how do they change over time scales longer than you are living your life your half yeah. second life yeah <laughs> oh my goodness so but but you might you might wonder i mean it's obvious to us that oh Young people start out small, they grow, and they become adults, and then they become old-aged. But that's not entirely obvious to you who's just seeing all of these instances of human at different moments in their lives, but no, no evolution, no time scales where they change from one to the next. And it's, you might also, as this alien, wonder, well, do, uh, do men, are men like an early stage of these humans of and then, women, they, and then or, they turn yeah. into women later in their lives. Right. It's not obvious. And it's the same thing when we, when we look up in the heavens and we see these different galaxies are disc galaxies intrinsically different from elliptical galaxies, like a man and a woman, and they will never go through that other phase of their life. And right. this other, or does one change depending on the context of what's going on, where it, you know, its environment or if it has more stars or something like that, will it change into an elliptical galaxy? And that's essentially what we're trying to ask and trying to better understand with the simulations. My goodness. It's interesting, but you're right. In terms of practical applications for benefiting man, aside from having a better understanding of how the universe evolves, there, there are none. Oh, to my, my knowledge <laughs> but i think it's still worth doing and i still think it's very cool and i'm glad that i've dedicated my life to doing this so yeah it's i'm okay with it oh i got so many questions yeah. now the first question is how has that sense of time has that affected your sense of time here on earth or your mortality uh i don't know <laughs> uh, not not too much actually like really? i was saying okay. at the beginning you you kind of compartmentalize the different areas of your life and you kind of, I mean, yes. Sounds I, healthy. Yeah, yeah, I think it's healthy. Because <laughs> otherwise, yeah, you could, I mean, 14 billion years is a long time. And uh, yeah, you just kind of abstract it away and think of 14 billion, oh yeah, that's one, four, and a bunch of zeros after right. it, as opposed to thinking of it, of it in, in terms of human time scales. You just have to. Yeah. Otherwise, you'll kind of go insane. <laughs> That's that's right. my fear. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. With such a vast field, and science seems to also take a fair amount of time to just kind of say, well, we know this much. Let's, like you said, start there and build on that, essentially. Right. right. Gosh, I mean, it just seems like science, there are breakthroughs, but generally speaking, it's a long 
kind of chipping away. It is. And breakthroughs are rare. It is. Uh, that's definitely, that's a valid point that a lot of scientists will spend their entire careers doing iterative increases in our understanding that are only, yeah, chipping away mm-hmm. at, at, at the big unknowns in our field. And then once in a while you'll have somebody who comes along like a Newton or an Einstein or something, someone at that level who's able to pull back the curtain substantially more than this chipping away. And we all want to be the person to make the big, the big discoveries. Sometimes, sometimes it's the individual, but oftentimes it's the opportunity, you know, what is it? Uh, chance favors the prepared mind. Luck favors the prepared mind. Something like that okay. is, the, is the saying. I think there are a lot of scientists who are capable of making that paradigmatic shift and understanding that leads to an enormous transformation of our understanding of a field. It's just luck as to what not, as to what subject matter might might come up and what what the context and the scientific questions are that that can reveal that. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that I'm a Newton or an Einstein, but I'm a relatively or or any of my colleagues were were well prepared if such a a question arises and an opportunity like this arises, but we can't pick and choose where the the big secrets are going to be revealed. Yeah. Is that something that you're, I don't know that you yearn for. Oh yeah, of course. I think, I think we all do. We all want to make, I mean, my biggest goal, at least in joining the field is, is to make some contribution that's worthwhile to humanity's understanding of nature. It doesn't have to be huge. It just I'd like to make a contribution that is that I feel is a worthwhile contribution to 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 our understanding of nature and the universe. And I think that's true for many scientists in my field because mm-hmm. as we said, the it's main not motivator the it's not the it's not the, <laughs> the, the, the money that people are in it for. It's 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 in it for the the curiosity, it's in it for the activity of doing the science. But ultimately, yeah, it's trying to make a contribution to to our understanding of, mm-hmm. of the universe. So yeah, of course, I'd like that to be a big contribution as opposed to a small contribution, but, but, you know, it's out of your hands. Well, essentially, yeah. I people or can no, be. I guess you just can said be, the preparation. The preparation is, is there. Yeah, and yeah. people can choose different subject matters to to pursue. Um, there are a lot of people moving towards doing exoplanetary uh, studies, so trying to discover planets around other stars. Mm-hmm. And in fact, this was unheard of. 20 years ago we we hadn't discovered any or i guess 25 years ago we hadn't we we discovered very few and now there are you know on the order of 5000 planets that have been discovered around other stars which is truly amazing if you think about it that yeah that's other, wild yeah other solar systems in our universe in our galaxy exist and potentially around the universe and then it gets into the question of do we have the possibility of actually detecting life around yes other planets and that that is that is potentially you know the person who discovers that is potentially like that's the biggest discovery that could i mean if it were ever done which it may be um i feel that's potentially the most important discovery that mankind can make is 
because that doesn't just affect our understanding of science and the universe. That uh, affects our understanding of philosophy and just and a giant paradigm shift of everything. Uh, oh my gosh! Yeah, it's amazing. So, so, so to answer your short, short answer to your question is: uh, Are there aliens? To my knowledge, there is not substantial evidence for the existence of life beyond our own earth but that doesn't mean just because i don't know about it and you don't know about it doesn't mean that there isn't and it doesn't mean that we're not we don't have the capability of potentially detecting that in our lifetime so i'm optimistic that if there is life that exists right now in our universe and it is alive right now as opposed to some civilization that will exist in the future or in the past Mm -hmm. uh that we you know we have the we potentially have the opportunity to detect it in our lifetime because the rate at which we're able to detect new planets and looking for biosignatures on those planets of course we can't go to these planets but we can we can detect the light from these planets and that can reveal something about what's going on there yeah uh, there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of promise and uh, what is a biosignature just a sign of life yeah, a sign of life in some capacity. So it could be from a if, if it's if it's an intelligent uh, form of life that is uh, developed technology substantially. They could be. It's like the movie if you've seen the mo- movie Contact or Interstellar, or a variety mm-hmm. of different science fiction films. They could be attempting to beam information to us, and then that's clearly that's not just a biosignature. That's like oh, there's a, they're trying to contact us. You know, they're ringing our telephone like hey, hey, hey. Yeah. So that that would be a very clear biosignature. But there are also biosignatures like the presence of certain molecules uh, in certain planetary atmospheres. So there's people consider the presence of oxygen existing in uh, an atmosphere that it could potentially mean that there's some sort of life that is able to produce that because there aren't a lot of naturally occurring non-biological means for producing large quantity quantities of oxygen in atmospheres. So that's definitely something that people are looking out for. And there, there are a number of other biosignatures uh, that I believe exist, but I don't focus on this research. So I don't know yeah. the details of it, but yes, people are definitely keeping this in mind. And in fact, because this is such a, an important question and it captivates the ideas and the thoughts of, of people, regardless of their, their, uh, their beliefs or yeah, their you get the smartest people to uh to, to not people, yeah, yeah. <laughs> every, people everyone's, in the middle of Florida. <laughs> everyone's super excited about this. And right. and so so there's a lot of potential taxpayer, you know, Congress is like, oh yeah, we want to discover the planets and life around the universe. So so there's a lot of potential um funding as well, which is well important. I feel like if you're if you're gonna find life on another planet, it's kinda like uh Saving wildlife on this planet, you gotta find a panda. You yeah, can't. You can't right. find a mosquito. Yeah, nobody. <laughs> nobody wants to pay for the mosquito to be saved. Right. It has to be a cute uh, polar bear. Or right. Something, you know? right. Absolutely. In terms of making money yeah. in through this field, you know, I I guess they. I want to say in two thousand eight or two thousand nine, two thousand seven. I don't know. Right. Yeah. So, somewhere around there, they put out a $20 million kind of goal to reach the moon for a private group of scientists. Right. Are you familiar with that? Uh, I didn't know it was for a private group of scientists, but you mean like, um, 
Oh, is this one of the... I think Google maybe Yeah, the Google X pay, Prize. Yeah. Yes. So there are a number of Google X Prizes. I think they're called X Prizes. I, that sounds right. And they are... They've... Forgive, I don't have it all kept in my head, but they made a bunch of goals, and if you were able to achieve certain goals, they would pay you some amount of money in the millions of dollars. Right. And one of the goals was to launch some sort of... Uh, rover or it was whatnot. like a, a lunar, lunar uh, lander. lander that could travel that, 300 yards on the moon or something like that so that's that's, right. that's an example of i guess private equity being that's pumped right. into science that's right is that are you at such a scale that that it's like it's even too yes it's too big yeah to that's even the problem so a lot of i think that's great and i think it's um it's a great way to make uh, partnerships between industry and academic science mm-hmm. and the field of astronomy and physics. But yes, for the scales of galaxies, too big. Um, the So for instance, the solar system, that's spot on. I think that's great. And, and it's worked. There's been a lot of development by private investment in space exploration. You've got... Uh, Jeff Bezos from Amazon has in uh, he has a company called I think it's called Blue Origins or Blue yeah something like that that mm-hmm. does essentially construction of spacecraft. You've got Elon Musk with SpaceX. You've got uh, Armadillo Aerospace, which is the the guy the a guy named John Carmack who was the developer behind the video game Doom and Quake in the like, 90s. <laughs> he got took his, too much money. He, he took his like, fortune and was like, I want to build spacecraft. So <laughs> right. that's great. And that's super exciting. Uh, and that, that has been successful. I mean, now NASA is using SpaceX's uh, craft for getting up to the International Space Station and back since we don't have the shuttle anymore. And for the last uh, five, eight years, we've relied on using Russian Soyuz rockets. So, so this is, it's definitely, it's definitely a direction forward mm-hmm. to use private industry to cut down on costs and to, to get into space. There's also a group, I believe they call themselves Planetary Resources, and their stated goal is to capture an asteroid and bring it into low Earth orbit and then mine the metals and the objects in that asteroid because there's there's a decent number of precious metals and iron and such that are available there mm-hmm. and we're running out of these sorts of resources on the surface of the earth so let's go grab one from space and yeah. mine that now it's a it's a little pipe dreamy but it's not it's not crazy and there is a i think their board of directors is made up of some really visionary i mean even some like hollywood directors who've just made a lot of money uh, yeah. I think james cameron is among them but there's there's a huge number of people who've invested in this with the prospect of of going up into space and pulling down money essentially yeah. so so cool. i guess all that being said you're studying the formation of galaxies right yes does y- it have application know, just, at this level but just in my short-lived career in comedy right i've gone from stand-up 
Then I moved to L.A. I got more into film, but still doing stand-up and more writing. Right. Would you bounce around or are you singularly focused on... In terms on of the subject matter. Right. Uh, good question. Most people remain somewhat singularly focused on the subject matter, at least until that subject matter is better understood. Right now, galaxy evolution is still somewhat of an open question. So there are definitely still questions to ask along mm-hmm. these lines. But yes, people will shift over the course of their career uh, to different different subjects that but might interest But what about you? Them. Me in particular? Do you think you Oh, would I think or? I'm actually, yes. I'm really interested and I have been for a long time and it was just kind of uh, a twist of fate that I ended up going into computational galaxy evolution. But I'm actually really interested in near-Earth near Earth orbit asteroids, much like this planetary... Uh, uh, resources mm-hmm. group. I mean, not because I want to go up and mine metals, but um, I think studying... You want to with Bruce Willis. And <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. Well, I think it's really interesting. And this this does have direct impact on civilization. We need to better characterize the distribution of asteroids that could run into the Earth and could end civilization. That is like Pardon? full stop. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. There are objects flying around space, flying around our solar system that like, I mean, maybe not identical to the movies Deep Impact <laughs> or Armageddon. There are a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of things, uh, liberties that were taken in making those films. But the idea still stands and is legitimate that there is the prospect of space rocks hitting our earth and destroying a city or destroying a country or destroying all life on the planet. Mm-hmm. This is a concern. Uh, this, as we understand it, is what was responsible for essentially wiping out the dinosaurs several hundred million years ago. And we'd like it not to be for us as well. So and we're all just staring at our phones. Yeah, we're all just <laughs> that's right. stare at your phones and wait till it wipes you out. So so. So this is a concern, and this is a concern of many people in the scientific community who want to better study these different asteroids and comets that could impact the surface of the Earth and could cause a lot of damage and loss of life. So this is an area that I've wanted to go into for a long time, Mm -hmm. um, but I just... I've been caught up with galaxies for a while. <laughs> right, right, so right. this is definitely an area that, at least personally, I'd like to shift into doing more with. Well, that also seems like it would give you the opportunity to take this this long span of time where you're chipping away right. to have an immediate emergency. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> really make a name for yourself. Make a name. Too. Yeah, exactly. If you save the Earth, it's a it's a big it's a big deal. Big kudos. <laughs> the other thing is, uh, I've wanted to be an astronaut for a long time. Uh, since childhood or uh i mean i think every kid at some level wants to be an astronaut i i didn't really think it was something that was anything more than just a dream or whatnot Mm -hmm. until graduate school and then i was like oh this is actually something that i could apply for and and do so I've applied twice so far. They, uh, I don't I'm know. sorry. There's a what's the application? Yeah, sir. Okay, to be so, an astronaut. Uh, so NASA, uh, since its onset, has has had different astronaut classes where they request. They have a, a period where they request applications. In the 80s and 90s, during the shuttle period, when we had lots and lots of frequent trips up into space on the shuttle. Uh, they had these requests for applications rather frequently, mm-hmm. once a year, once every six months even. Today, they're much less frequent because, well, 
we don't have a lot of means to get into space. Right now, the shuttle program was grounded several years ago. And as I said, the main way that NASA astronauts get into space right now is through the Soyuz, the Russian Soyuz, and we have to pay the Russians a lot of money to use their spacecraft to get up into space. The hope uh, for quite some time has been to build alternative NASA-based, American-based means to get into space. Um, SpaceX is now doing that at some level, but in terms of manned spacecraft, uh, we still have some some work to do. But until that time exists when we're doing it more frequently, uh, NASA requests applications for their astronaut corps about, I mean, it's irregular, but on the order of once every three years, once every four years. Yeah. And the last two periods I applied, the last period they, I mean, anyone can apply. Uh, there are a few set qualifications that you have to have. Like you have to have an undergraduate degree in a math or a science-related field. Uh, you have to be, uh, what are the other, f- like fixed? You have to be an American citizen. Uh, but there are only a handful of like fixed requirements, and then it's just whether or not they they think that you have the right stuff, so to yeah. speak. Um, so at the last application period, there were 17,000 applicants, and they narrowed that in the end down to, I think the, the class that they announced this year was 10? Yeah. Uh, maybe 12, but I think it was 10. Um, and they do a series of cuts from the original 17,000. Um, initially, they cut it to 500, then they cut it to 100, then they cut it to 50, and then they cut it to their class. And I know I made the original, or the, the 500 cut, so I was hey. happy about that, but uh, but I didn't make. Gotta it get a that, little. So. Uh, gotta get a promotion company yeah, yeah, behind that's you right. and a little PR. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> run for this like president. <laughs> that's right. So so there, uh, in some ways, and this isn't really what's dictated my interest in near, near Earth um, objects, but um, that was that's definitely an application of like, if you're an astronaut and you understand the orbits of objects that are flying around the inner solar system and that could impact our earth it's definitely beneficial to your cause yeah i would think i would think that's better than uh than galaxy somebody that's galaxy like uh, you know I'm a, i i study galaxies teach elementary math oh yeah well that's <laughs> definitely true too yeah yeah that's true okay so you're looking up at the sky <laughs> you got all these questions right that seems to be the most creative part is like coming up with the hypothesis of, I guess, what you think is... Is responsible for the evolution of galaxies. Right. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's right. It's every day you're trying to come up with a better explanation for what's going on. And it's informed by the results of your simulations. It's informed by observations that my colleagues are continuing to make with with uh, telescopes, whether they're space-based telescopes like Hubble or mm-hmm. ground-based telescopes like the Keck telescopes in Hawaii. And yeah, you're trying to, yeah, it's just asking lots of questions. Of so what are some examples of the, the questions that you start out with? Uh, some of the questions, some of the questions are, what, what is the simplest model that I can produce in my simulations that's able to reproduce these observations. So do I need to include effects like magnetic fields, which can be even for even for Earth-based uh, phenomena. Sometimes magnetic fields are involved, sometimes they're not. So do I need to include those in my models? 
do I need to include uh, the effects of of things that 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 may not be quite so obvious? So, for instance, as a really good example of this, you've heard of have you heard of dark matter? Sure. So dark matter. I mean, I don't know. What can you tell me about that? I can't tell you anything, okay, okay. but I've heard I, of it. I just wanted to make sure I wasn't like mansplaining something to <laughs> oh, you. Oh, please, if you're, if, mansplain. You're an, if you're an expert on this. Okay, so... Uh, so <laughs> if I'm an expert, <laughs> I'm a comedian with a rinky-dink podcast. <laughs> okay, okay. So, so dark matter uh, is a controversial subject. And that is the, the reason for that is we don't have any direct detections of the existence of dark matter. So astronomers are proposing that some unknown form of matter exists and it and it doesn't just exist it actually dominates there's much much more according to our models there's much much more dark matter in the universe than there is baryonic matter matter like protons and electrons and the mm-hmm. stuff that we're made of and yet we've never seen this we've never detected it in a lab so why are we so sure that this is the case yeah who came up with this one uh this has been a a bunch of people who've come up with the this idea a bunch of the guys smoking years. weed yeah that's right that's right uh, a gentleman named fritz zwicky who was a swiss astronomer in the 30s and 40s um came up with some idea for this based on indirect evidence for it uh, there were several people in the 60s and 70s uh vera rubin was uh, a scientist an astronomer on the East Coast in D.C. at the Carnegie Observatories who noticed that you had to have some additional matter that wasn't in the form of gas or stars that existed in galaxies in order to explain the the, the way they were moving quite so quickly and not flying apart. Um, and there's just been... And an it's, it just can't be gravity. Right. So, exactly. This is this is the good question. So, that's that's actually a really good question. Should we, I give this guy a call? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah, maybe you'll, you, you'll <laughs> you get a job. About have you thought about gravity, people? Because I just came up with then that. Then just hang up the phone. That's right. So this is, this, is what was, this is what we're trying to figure out. Gravity was af- effectively first proposed by Newton 400 years ago and then tweaked a little with the theory of relativity by Einstein about 100 years ago, early 20th century. And we think Einstein's theory of relativity is a really good uh, model for how gravity behaves and, and causes particles and matter to interact with each other. And it's held up really, really well to experiment hundreds and thousands of times. So we're, we're pretty confident that relativity is, is, is good. Mm-hmm. But there's always room for improvement. And uh, based on these indirect measures, and like I said, most of the time it's it's the need for more stuff, more mass in large structures like galaxies or clusters of galaxies to explain why they move like they do, effectively that they move as quickly as they do, even though, as I said, they move very, very yeah. slowly, but, <laughs> yeah. but quickly relative to what they would in the absence of this this extra matter but it doesn't appear to interact electromagnetically it doesn't appear to emit light or scatter light or absorb light in any way which is why it's called dark Mm -hmm. because it doesn't interact it doesn't it doesn't emit light like a light bulb or it doesn't even you could hold up a piece of dark matter and light would fly right through it there could be dark matter in front of you between you and me and we wouldn't see it because light just it doesn't interact Uh, with light at all yeah so that's what makes it dark not like a black hole or anything like that. And so 
uh, astronomers don't want to believe in dark matter, but the evidence is very, very strong uh, from all of these things. It's very, very consistent with there being some sort of matter that's there, but not interacting in terms of the light that's scattered or emitted or, or absorbed. And, and astronomers it, don't want to believe in dark matter because it makes things incredibly difficult. No, it, it's, 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 it doesn't make things too difficult. It's just we don't want to believe in something that we don't have direct evidence of, that we can't detect. Yeah. Because it's like believing in your invisible dog spot. Believing in aliens. It, in, <laughs> exactly. Anything we, you know... We believe in things that there's evidence for. And there's indirect evidence for dark matter, but there's not, no one has a piece of dark matter in their hand and is like, here it is. This yeah. is it, guys. Uh, and yeah, that's the main concern is, 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 is we need evidence to, to believe in something. But there is. I mean, but doesn't that screw everything up? You know, I'm not, uh, I took up to trig no, in no, college. That's cool. But you got an equation. Uh, <laughs> This plus this plus this divided by this uh, equals this. Right. But there's one factor that, that you're just that like, right. well, how do we account for dark matter? Right. Well, fortunately, the the models that incorporate some dark matter, which again, we haven't yet detected directly, but if you include these in your models, everything just kind of works out. It works out and it's consistent with the observations that we have in the sky. Oh, okay. So that's why I say like astronomers don't want to believe in this, but it makes everything work when we include it. Yeah. So this is a, an active field where lots and lots of people are trying to detect this directly. There are labs, essentially labs in enormous, you know, in, in mines deep in the earth that have these big uh, liquid vats with the hope of dark matter passing through and causing some sort of reaction inside the big, essentially like a big fish tank um, with photo detectors all around it. They're looking for some indication that a dark matter particle has passed through it or whatnot. So there's there's lots and lots and lots of experiments trying to detect this stuff. Yeah. But as of yet, we, we haven't. So uh, this is just all bringing you back to these are creative questions that you can <laughs> yeah. ask of stuff when in fact... You know, we, we don't really have, you know, we're, we're, we're just, we're trying to follow up on these creative questions and, and yeah. Well, that sounds like that would be a hell of a breakthrough. Yes, it absolutely would be. Guys, I found dark matter. I found dark matter. I detected dark <laughs> Send matter. Send it to the list. Send it, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Okay. So something I've been asking all of my guests and I, you know, I'm curious about how this works within a scientific field. What's your what's been your biggest creative failure within your field? And what have you learned from it? Whether it's a certain study that you've done or or a, a process within that or my biggest creative failure. Okay, that was Cameron, and that is the episode. As usual, there will be a bonus episode with Cameron coming out later where he answers that last daunting question. It was so great talking to Cameron because I felt like I was in over my head mentally and walked away with a solid existential crisis knowing that I am but a speck of dust floating through the universe. If you'd like to make me feel like a slightly bigger speck of dust, share the podcast with your friends. 
After all, it is called the design of everything, so there's something for everyone. And if you'd like to come see me live in Los Angeles, my weekly interaction with people takes place at Golden Hour, a stand-up comedy showcase in the Frogtown neighborhood. I host it with my good friend M.K. Paulson every Sunday at 7 p.m. at 2902 Gilroy Street, and we provide beer, hot dogs, and hot toddies during these colder winter months. Okay, that does it for me. Until next week, treat yourself to some creativity in your own lives.